Welcome to Life Solved, the research podcast from the University of Portsmouth, where we explore how studies here are changing our world today and in the future. I'm John Worsey, a writer at the University of Portsmouth. This is the time of year when the Christmas bills start arriving through the letterbox, and with national economies continuing to struggle in many places of the world, January might be feeling something of a challenge for you. Dr. Robert Gorsden is a senior lecturer in the School of Accounting, Economics and Finance. And Dr. Joe Cox is Associate Professor of Digital Economy here at the University. What we do as economists is try and take a broader perspective. Of course, at an individual level, everyone would like to earn higher wages, for prices to come down, for taxes to come down. But, you know, we live in the real world. We live in a world of unlimited wants and scarce resources. So... What are the key economic terms that we need to understand? What are the challenges that our financial systems currently face? And when can we expect things to feel just a little bit easier as we wait for our January pay packets to arrive? That's what we aim to find out. Interest rates and inflation have been two key terms we've perhaps heard far too much about in recent years. But they're terms that many of us hear on news bulletins but don't necessarily fully understand. And although Robert explains inflation from a UK perspective, this should roughly make sense wherever you live in the world. When people talk about inflation, what they mean more specifically is consumer price inflation. And consumer price inflation is calculated by a statistical agency known as the Office for National Statistics. Now, the Office for National Statistics undertakes surveys of households and it conducts these surveys in an attempt to establish what households are spending their money on. And having conducted these surveys, it creates a basket of representative goods and services and it works out the cost of this basket from one month to the next. And it's particularly interested in how the cost of the basket is changing over a 12-monthly period. It works out the percentage change, and that percentage change is known as the annual rate of price inflation. Now, as you probably know, back in November, the inflation rate was 3.9%. That had come down from 4.6% in the October and it was 6.7% in the September. In fact, inflation had been as high as 11.1% in October 2022, and that's essentially when people began to refer to a cost-of-living crisis. But is inflation in itself a bad thing? So a small amount of inflation in an economy is quite normal, and it's actually the sign of quite a healthy, well-functioning economy. And indeed, you don't want prices to fall, because if prices are consistently falling over time, people will withhold their expenditure. They'll wait till prices come down. And that very action of withholding expenditure can slow the economy down and cause a recession. So a small amount of price rises over time is actually something that's desirable. It's when the figures get to double digits or really high levels that you start to, to encounter problems. So if prices are going up, inflation is probably going up. And if inflation is going up, surely our wages should be going up as well. Joe doesn't necessarily think so. I can see why that's a popular opinion. And the logic's there, I guess, in some sense, is that the reason we're interested in inflation is partly to get a sense of how it's affecting standards of living. 
So if incomes are rising more slowly than the prices of goods, it means the incomes we have won't buy as much as they did before. So in real terms, our standard of living is declining. So a possible solution is if you just pay people more, if incomes rise, then you solve the problem. But the difficulty with that is if people's incomes rise, you increase the wage level, then that's increasing the costs that employers are having to face for their labour, for their employees. So they will typically respond by increasing prices further. So even though there might be a short-term bounce from that, in the long run, what will happen is that prices will rise further to counteract that. And you start entering what's known as a wage price inflation spiral, where wages go up, prices go up further, so wages go up further, so prices go up further. Ultimately, our wealth and how well off we are is is determined by the goods and services we produce and can consume. And if that's declining, then changes in wages and incomes isn't going to change that. Ultimately, if wage inflation continues to match price inflation, nobody is going to win. Um, if wage inflation rises, this increases the costs of various employers. Now, you've got two different sectors in this country. You've got a private sector and you've got a public sector. If wages are rising at a phenomenal rate in the private sector, then the firms concerned may be keen to pass on those costs in the form of higher prices to consumers. And as Joe mentioned, you get this wage price inflationary spiral. In the public sector, it's a little bit different. What you tend to have in the public sector is different government departments with fixed budgets. Of course, then if it's being necessary to pay higher wages to the employees, then you can't employ as many of them. Or you have to raise taxes yeah, to, you've got to raise and then taxes. You know, that counteracts the effect of the higher wages. Well, this all sounds rather gloomy. But as we head into a new year, Robert thinks that there is more than a bit of light at the end of the financial tunnel. With a caveat. We can see inflation coming down. There are clear signals that inflation is coming down and will go down further. If inflation comes down, interest rates will also be coming down. We'll get a little bit more stability. Of course, what we have to bear in mind is it are external factors. You could say the main reason we've got a so-called cost of living crisis is because of an external factor, the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. Now, sadly, there are often external factors that are going to come along and upset the economy. So even if we can ride out this problem of, of the Russian invasion, we've now got another problem, possibly in the Red Sea. This is affecting shipping. Shipping may have to be diverted and take a long way around to transport goods. And if the price of shipping rises, if insurance premiums rise, this is going to fuel a further bout of price inflation. So this is the problem, that there are external factors. If you go back in the past, even higher rates of price inflation were experienced in the 1970s and the 1980s, and they stemmed from significant increases in the price of oil. And it's these external factors that tend to come along and upset a stable economy. And sadly, it takes a long while to recover from those external forces. And with world events seemingly happening at quite some speed at the moment, we can't accurately predict what the weeks and months ahead hold in store for us. 
This interview was recorded in early January 2024, but it's realistic to assume that by the time this episode reaches your ears, there may have been further developments around the globe that bring better or worse news for the economy. One way of controlling increasing inflation, though, is interest rates. Robert explains. Interest rates are a method of controlling inflation. And indeed, the government a long time ago passed responsibility to the Bank of England for setting interest rates. If we go back in time, back in May 1997, we had the Labour Party elected as the government. Tony Blair became the Prime Minister. Gordon Brown became the Chancellor. The first decision that Gordon Brown took was to give operational independence to the Bank of England. In other words, he gave the Bank of England control over the country's monetary policy. What we mean by that is that the Bank of England was given control over managing interest rates in order to control inflation. Now, there's an inflation target and the Bank of England has a monetary policy committee that meets to decide what is the appropriate rate of interest in order to meet that target. Now, if inflation looks as though it's going to be higher than its target, the Monetary Policy Committee of the Bank of England tends to raise interest rates. Now, the reason it would raise interest rates is that that would discourage borrowing and it would give an incentive to saving. So if there's less encouragement to borrow and a greater incentive to save, that reduces the spending of the public and with less demand for goods and services that should put downward pressure on prices. So it's the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee that decides interest rates and it will set interest rates at an appropriate level to achieve an inflation target. Certainly in the UK the effects of the Covid-19 pandemic are still being felt. Many people were furloughed, so in effect the public purse was paying wages for a number of months during the time that many businesses couldn't open and make money. And that leads us to another part of the financial puzzle. Taxes. The government has an amount of debt that is almost 100% of its gross domestic product. This is historically high in peace times. And one issue for the government, it has to be seen to be managing its finances. In fact, one of uh, Rishi Sunak's promises is to reduce the amount of debt over a five-year period, I guess. And if that is his objective, and it's a very reasonable objective because we want financial stability, this means that he cannot be profligate. He, he would very much like to cut taxes, especially in the year that's going to include an election. But he can't afford to do too much of that because the government finances will suffer the markets will become nervous and when the markets become nervous you end up with a depreciating currency and even higher interest rates. And tax cuts will create further upward pressure on prices. So just as we're seeming to turn a corner with inflation, lowering taxes may cause prices to start rising again. I think the government has to be very careful about doing that too soon. But I think the problem is, as Robert says, we're in an election year. So what the current government is going to look to do is make popular decisions so they're going to win it votes it's not necessarily the right decision economically inflation interest rates and taxes certainly at the moment the combination of the three seems to be preventing most of us from living our best lives but it's worthwhile trying to see the bigger picture 
I think you have to take that. That's what we do as economists is try and take a broader perspective. Of course, at an individual level, everyone would like to earn higher wages for prices to come down, for taxes to come down. But, you know, we live in the real world. We live in a world of unlimited wants and scarce resources. And so that core economic problem has to be managed. And yes, I think everyone concerned wants to maximise living standards for as many people as possible. But that isn't always easy. And what seems like obvious solutions or attractive solutions to voters actually possibly isn't in their long-term interest. So one does have to take a sort of broader view of things when making these kind of decisions. If you're enjoying Life Sold, the research podcast from the University of Portsmouth, then you might like one of our other episodes. Now in our 13th series, there's a wealth of stories to be explored and information to be understood over more than 100 episodes. Earlier in 2023, we spoke to Dr. John Fox, a former senior police detective turned academic. We talked about the authorities overseeing the police service and the behaviour and attitudes of their officers. What an officer does in terms of their financial affairs, whether they're a registered criminal, but they don't know how an applicant officer thinks. Okay, and that's the big difference. So that, to me, is where things need to change. That episode, alongside all the others, is available to stream for free wherever you listen to your podcasts. As we've heard already, economies are having a tough time around the world. From decisions made by individual governments to worldwide pandemics and conflicts. And everyone, from governments to companies to individuals, are feeling the effects. But if it's some comfort, this is not a unique period in financial history. Robert has a UK perspective on this. We have had so-called cost of living crises in the past and we have recovered from them. If you do go back to the 1970s, in 1975, it was probably measured in a slightly different way, but price inflation was 24%. It was still 18% in 1980. As I mentioned earlier, that stemmed from very steep rises in the price of oil. And in those days, we were a very oil-dependent economy. We still are in a way. But we overcame that. But there was a, a severe cost and the cost was very restrictive monetary and fiscal policy that was implemented by Margaret Thatcher's government. The cost of higher interest rates and reduced spending by the government was that we had a very long recession. From, from memory, it took about 13 quarters for GDP, gross domestic product, to go back to its pre-recession level. So we'd had an enormous recession, and in those days, that was associated with a very high rate of unemployment. We had unemployment reaching almost 12%, and in terms of numbers, that was in excess of 3 million. Now, at the moment, the rate of unemployment is only between 4 and 5%, even though we're not enjoying very much economic growth. So maybe we are coping a little bit better on this occasion with crises, and what history tells us is that we do eventually come out of a crisis. And we had a long period in the 1990s up to about 2007 when we were regularly having a, a decent amount of economic growth. Sadly, then we got the financial crisis. There's always something that comes along to trip up the economy. But if we're patient, then we, we can get out of this. 
One more recent challenge, though, is low productivity, the level of financial output that can be created by the input of workers. And the opportunities to increase productivity falls squarely in the manufacturing sector compared to the service sector, which is bad news if you cut hair for a living. If you think about someone, a hairdresser or a barber, for example, providing a service, productivity is measured in the number of haircuts they can produce within a, an hour or a day. Now, it's very difficult to dramatically increase that quantity. There's very little that technology can do really to dramatically increase that. So the service sector, it's much more difficult to see those sustained significant productivity gains. But an increase in productivity appears to be the answer to the UK's financial challenges and for many countries around the world. The UK has experienced a major issue of productivity. That's not uncommon. Other major economies have also seen productivity levels fall. But again, it seems to have been somewhat more pronounced in the UK. And we're talking about standard of living improvements. Entering into this price wage inflation spiral doesn't really increase standards of living, but increasing productivity does. And productivity kind of means how much output each unit of labour, each worker is able to produce. And since the financial crisis, the increase we've seen in that level of productivity has slowed dramatically compared to the trend leading up to that point. And there are huge question marks as to why that is. It's called the productivity puzzle. But I think if we're looking at ways in which we can actually enjoy better standards of living and get the economy growing beyond this kind of anemic flatline that we're, we're seeing, we need to be looking at how to boost productivity. Productivity growth is the answer. We want wage inflation, uh, but we don't want accompanying price inflation. Now, if your wage inflation is matched by the same rate of growth of productivity, that need not give rise to higher prices because what it's costing to produce a unit of output is remaining the same. So if you've got a high rate of productivity growth, you can have high wage increases without having at the same time a high rate of price inflation. Now, as Joe says, the key question is, how do we achieve a high rate of productivity? Economists seem to know the general answer, which is to have more investment in innovation. And how do you engineer a greater amount of investment? Well, you can give incentives to the private sector, and that's what Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, attempted to do in the most recent autumn statement. So there's an incentive for firms to invest and hopefully they'll respond to that. They've got a financial incentive to do so. What you're also wanting, though, is investment undertaken in the public sector. It's much needed because mm. you've seen on the television the state of hospitals and schools. And there's much expenditure required to improve the physical state of schools and hospitals. We also know that roads are full of potholes, you name it. So there's much that we need to spend in the public sector, but there we are more restricted because we have to bear in mind what is the government's debt situation. We've got to bear in mind what is borrowing from year to year. And it just is the case that the government probably hasn't got much more scope there unless it's prepared to push up taxes even more. And I think by and large, the country have had enough of that. And aside from service and manufacturing industries, the public sector is incredibly important if we want to see increased productivity. Even though it might demonstrate itself over a much longer term, hospitals getting people back on their feet quicker, schools helping pupils reach their academic potential, 
better roads that help goods transfer to the customer faster. That all has to be good news for the economy. In the UK, though, we're a little behind the curve. I think we've been historically bad at investing in the UK, particularly compared to comparator nations in the G7. I think part, part of the issue with it is it's a longer-term political strategy to invest in infrastructure. That involves expenditure now, but the payoff doesn't come for many years into the future. Now, if you're looking at a government on a fixed-term parliament of five years, they often aren't making decisions on that kind of time frame. The way our electoral cycles work encourages somewhat short-termist thinking that gives immediate returns to try and secure re-election. And actually what we need in this country is a more forward-thinking, longer-term strategy. And I think we should be looking at ways in which we can bring in, say, independent bodies to make those kind of investment decisions that's free from governments seeking quick wins to secure re-election, which isn't actually in the long-term interest of the country. I think another factor is the structure of our economy. Sadly, compared to just after the war, let's say, we don't have much of a manufacturing sector. I think 8 or 9% of our output is associated with manufacturing. Now, if you want to increase productivity, it seems to be much easier when you've got a manufacturing sector. Germany's manufacturing sector is about 18% of its gross domestic product is much larger. Now, we could see that if you can introduce into your factory a much more efficient machine, then with the same amount of labour, you can produce much more and you've got an easy gain in productivity. But a lot of what we do in this country is provide services. Yeah. And it's much harder to achieve productivity gains in services. With the help of Robert and Joe, we've hopefully given you an insight into the key elements that make up economies around the world, the challenges they bring, and an understanding of the cost of living crisis. Not all of it has been good news. Some of it requires patience. Some of it requires investment. But if you're after some immediate positivity, Joe's your man. As things stand, it seems like we and other developed economies have turned a corner in terms of combating inflation. So it seems like inflation rates have peaked and are coming down. If that's the case, then central banks can look to lower interest rates. And I think the markets are generally looking at that. And the indications we're getting is that it's not a question of if, but when and how quickly interest rates are going to come down. Depending on who you speak to, economists, or you look at market data, it does seem to suggest markets are pricing in interest rate reductions over this year. It's a case of when they might come in, perhaps the springtime, but central banks are saying maybe that's too soon and they, they want to take a more cautious approach but i think it, we're looking at a situation where interest rates are inevitably going to come down at some point it's more a case of how quickly and when that's going to begin rather than if that's going to happen i think we've, we've passed the peak of interest rates thanks for listening to this episode of life solved you're very welcome to be part of the discussion email us at lifesolved at port.ac.uk that's lifesolved one word at port.ac.uk. Tell us what you think and make suggestions for future episodes of Life Solved. And we'd love it if you clicked follow on your podcast app so you never miss an edition. We'd really appreciate it if you left a rating or review as well. It helps us to get these conversations into more ears around the globe. If you've been inspired by this episode and want to support our work, including the research you've heard about in the School of Accounting, Economics and Finance, then head to port.ac.uk slash lifesolved to find out how.
You can also find out how to work or study with us. And that is the final episode of Season 13 of Life Solved. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back very soon. Bye for now.